thanks Shelly for leading us in communion today. If you're new to the church, that's my wonderful wife. I uh, love her heart for the Lord. Um, she's been willing to go on lots of adventures with me. I would like to welcome all those joining us online today. And I had mentioned in a previous message that our daughter Haley, when she was younger, like one and two years old, that she really struggled with high fevers. If she had any kind of infection, then her, her fevers would spike 105, 106 degrees. Uh, it was dangerous. And the first time this had happened, we were actually visiting with my oldest sister and her husband, and we were leaving from visiting them in the airport, and we knew Haley wasn't feeling well, so we just tried to do the best we could to get into the airport, go through security, which is always a challenge to do with young kids if you've ever been there. Uh, It's good times. But as we were going into the airport then, I went to the Starbucks counter to get some milk for Nate, who was four, and Haley, who was... Was she one? She wasn't even two yet, so one in a few months, I guess one and a half maybe. And so I came back and gave Shelly the milk, and she was proceeding to give that to Haley, and I turned my back to to go to the garbage and throw something away, and Shelly was giving Haley that milk, and then she started to have a seizure. It's called a febrile seizure. When the the fever goes so high, then basically it's like your brain just kind of turns off, and so she started to seize. And in that moment, Shelly yelled out, I need a doctor. And a man, maybe to her arm's length away, said, I'm a doctor. I'm a pediatrician. What do you need? And so then Shelly's like, my daughter's having a seizure. So he just went, unbuckled her from her stroller that she was in. Of course, she was stiff as a board. And he went and cleared off the Starbucks counter, put her on the counter, and began to attend to her needs. As I went and got, grabbed security and said, you know, we need some medical, medical help here. You know, in that moment of crisis, God put a pediatrician an arm's length away. That's no coincidence to help our seizing daughter. Can you look back on your life and think about times where it was evident that God was there? As I was talking with Shelly, I said, Shelly, I need to convey this truth. And and we just started then recounting the story after story. Honestly, I could share numerous stories of where we've seen God has been right there in that moment. It's incredible. And as you read through scripture, you have examples all throughout of times where God shows up in the lives of people who are not unlike you and I. And it could be people who are far from God, people who are close to God. But in the end, God shows up. He just does. Well, 2,000 years ago, God showed up in a special way. He showed up in the form of an infant in the town of Bethlehem. And and that's what we're going to be reading this morning from Luke chapter 2. So if you have your Bibles, (laughs) I hope you do. Hey, if you don't have a Bible, you're here today. You've got them underneath the seat in front of you. If you don't have one at home, feel free to take that. It's our gift to you. And what we're going to do is read verses 1 through 7 this morning. Chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. I'm also going to invite you to stand for the reading of God's Word, simply out of reverence for the fact that we have God's Word with us. So thankful for that, that we have His Word for instruction in life. So Luke chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. In those days a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quinarius was governor of Syria. And all went to be registered each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with his betrothed, who was with child. I'm going to pause there. Do we know how long it took him to get there and then for Jesus to be born? No, it doesn't say. We like to read things in the scripture sometimes. I'm going to uncover some of those truths today. Does it say they were riding on a donkey? from Nazareth to Bethlehem? No, it doesn't say that. We, like Hollywood, we put these things in there. I just want to draw your attention to a couple of things. All right, so there's a pause, and then verse 6, And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. 
And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. may be seated this morning. So we're going to continue with Luke, Jesus Ignited. And I like to go through books of the Bible. And in doing so, I know that we receive the whole counsel of God. Nothing is missed. That's why we do it. And so I picked the enormous book of Luke, and we're going to take some years going through it. And I'm good with that. And we're going to start in chapter 2, verses 1 through 7, so we get in a new chapter today. And we're looking at the birth of Jesus. And according to our Christmas tradition, the birth of Jesus includes three wise men bearing gifts, shepherds in the fields in midwinter, a baby born in a stable and no room in the inn, right? Yep, that's our tradition. Well, that might not be the case. If you were here for our first service on December 20th, 2015, so a year and some months, who was here for that service, the first service we were here? So we've got a bunch, but we've got a lot that weren't. And so I'm going to cover some thoughts that I shared with you that day for the benefit of those who weren't here on that day um, so that we can make sure that everybody's clear on what this Christmas story is really all about. Shelly likes to tell people I ruined their Christmas story. That's not what I'm trying to do today. But I do know our traditions can sometimes greatly impact the way we read the Bible. So now instead of focusing on our traditional understanding, what I want to do is look at Scripture to see what it really has to say, and especially with an understanding of Middle Eastern culture. We lived there for years. And now I will say, first of all, that we can examine the birth of Jesus at times other than Christmas, right? So we're celebrating Christmas in February. But I do have to say, if you still have your Christmas lights up, it's February. You know, your neighbors have been nice. They don't want to say anything. You just might want to take those down. I don't know. I'm just saying. All right, Luke 1. Luke 2, the birth of Jesus. The truth is no one really knows when Jesus was born. The Bible says the shepherds were in their fields at night. So I'll tell you, that indicates it probably wasn't December because I've been in Jerusalem, and it's cold in December. They're going to be out there midday. It actually seems that he was probably born sometime in around September. Uh, that's at least the indicators we have, the cultural clues that we have. And so Christians really didn't know when Jesus was born, and there was already a popular holiday celebrated by the Romans on December 25th. It was a pagan feast and festival, and considering today, think about like Super Bowl-esque kind of holiday. Everyone had the day off. The dip was already made. The Christians felt like, let's just celebrate Christmas this day. It's already a celebration. So now we celebrate Christmas on December 25th. And that's fine. Kind of breaks up the winter for us. Now, before we dive into the passage, here's what I'd like to first do is, is answer the question, what kind of family did Jesus grow up in? And this is really the question I want to know. What kind of parents did God choose for Jesus? You ever thought about that? I mean, that was no accident why he chose Mary and Joseph. So that's what I want to first look at. And so that leads me to the first point of that God is here. That's what I want to focus on today. And that Jesus was raised by incredible parents. Let's look at Mary. In December, we read through Luke 1, 26 through 33, where the angel Gabriel, he visits Mary in Nazareth. And here's what he says. Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. And he continues. Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. So Mary finds favor with God. He chose her as the mother of Jesus, but why? Well, the verses we read a couple of weeks ago from Luke 1, 46 to 55, Mary's song of praise, it helps us better understand. So Mary, she visits Elizabeth, and soon after she worships God. She doesn't worry about her situation. She just worships. And what she says is, my soul magnifies the Lord. I love this verse. And my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. 
that would be a great verse for you to wake up with every morning. If you could think that way. Now, I'm sure some of you don't look at the morning that way. Your soul does not magnify the Lord. At least not till you've had some coffee, maybe. That's okay. But her song's divided into two parts. What she does is she sings first about herself, and then she sings about the wider faith community. And I pointed out that the song appears to be missing a line if you were here for that message. Verse 54 says, God has helped his servant Israel. And we should have a counterpoint to this line. That the next line should include something like cutting off the hope of the Gentiles. But that line isn't there. Because Mary's song presents a woman with boundless compassion for the oppressed, along with a clear vision for how that, that oppression should be lifted. The Gentiles are not opposed, but the mighty and the arrogant are. Mary's an intelligent woman who knows that God has grace for her ethnic community and all of those who believe. So Jesus was raised by an extraordinary mother who influenced him in ways of grace and mercy. That's Mary. Now what about Joseph? Well, we read in Matthew chapter 1, 18, it says, Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way, that when his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man, and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. So the question is, what does just mean? Joseph the just, what does that mean? Well, in Deuteronomy 22, if you're reading through the Old Testament, you would have passed through De Deuteronomy. It states that if a betrothed virgin meets a man in the city and lies with him, the two should be stoned. That was the Mosaic law. But the verses we read in Matthew affirms that because Joseph was just, he decided to break the law of Moses and divorce Mary quietly rather than publicly exposing her. So he went against the law. Joseph applies an extraordinary and unexpected definition of justice with the crisis with Mary. Justice for him was more than equal application of the law. That wasn't his view of justice. His nobler view of justice likely came from Isaiah. Because here's what Isaiah says in Isaiah 42. A bruised reed he will not break, and a dimly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. That's a little bit different view of justice. Justice, as understood by Isaiah, is neither retributive justice, which is basically you harm me, and I'm going to see that you're harmed, nor is it equal application of the law. This is a different definition of justice. Here, justice means compassion for the weak and the exhausted. Joseph, he looked beyond the penalties of the law in order to reach out with tenderness to a young woman who was in need of compassionate response. That's what Mary needed. He acts as a strong, thoughtful person whose bold decision at a point of crisis, he saves the life of a mother and her unborn child. Now the next verse reads in Matthew, it says, But as he considered these things, so Joseph considers these things, Behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. Well, Kenneth Bailey, one of my favorite old dead guys, what his translation, he's got incredible translation ability. So he grew up, his parents were cross-cultural workers overseas in the Middle East. So he grew up there, became fluent, and of course English, his parents were American, but also in, in Arabic and Hebrew, and he studied ancient languages, so Aramaic and Syriac. This guy's brilliant. And so I love to, to get his information. There's a great book if you want, you know, in case you're short of books to read, I, I like to recommend them. But there's a great book called Jesus Through Middle Eastern Eyes by Kenneth Bailey. It's awesome. Uh, I encourage you to read it. 
And I think this is where he talks about this passage. And his translation of this line, but as he considered these things, as Joseph considered these things, he thinks it's better translated as, while he fumed over this, like angry. (laughs) He was hot with anger. He was angry at the fact that he was about to have to marry somebody that seemed to be with somebody else's child. So even though this event caused Joseph to get upset, he was of such character, he was able to reprocess his anger into grace. That's the kind of man Joseph was. He possessed the boldness, the daring, the courage, and strength of character to stand up against his entire community and take Mary as his wife. That's a strong guy. God places Jesus in the home of Mary and Joseph to be raised by two incredible parents. They raised Jesus to honor Father God, and they instructed him in the Bible. They modeled obedience, even yearly travel to the temple for Passover. We're going to see that a little bit later in this chapter even though they were people that did not have means. And I'm going to point out how we know that they really did not have means, but they still made it a priority to go to Passover every year. They were his teachers, Mary instructing him at home, while Joseph was his master teacher, teaching Jesus a daily trade and instructing him in the Bible. They raised Jesus in ways of grace and mercy and with a value system that included compassionate justice. That's how Jesus was raised. So I would ask you, parents, are you raising your children in a home? that provides instruction in the Bible? You need to do that. Are you raising your kids to display grace and mercy to everyone around them? Mary and Joseph displayed lives of great obedience. They followed the Lord. Are you living an obedient life to God? It matters. God the Father sent his son to be born in a household of Mary and Joseph, knowing they would do their part. God trusted them. And now the second point is is that God is here, and he's not made in our image. If you visit the Church of the Annunciation in Nazareth, like our group will do in June if you come with us, there's a huge courtyard there, and on it are pictures of Mary and Jesus according to different um, countries and cultures around the world. It's kind of cool. Here's a picture of Asian Jesus. And on the one hand, it's kind of neat. Nearly every nation, every culture embracing the message of Jesus. But on the other hand, it's also a little bit disturbing. Because for me, this pictorial gallery represents what people do with the incarnation, the coming of Jesus. They make Jesus in their image. You know, the birth story, it's not a story of Jesus coming in our image. He didn't come as an Asian, he didn't come as a Russian, didn't come as an American. He came as a Middle Eastern male born to incredible godly parents. He had to learn to walk, to talk, to read. We're going to see this at the very end of chapter 2. It says he grew in wisdom and stature. I love that. Jesus had to grow. It's not like everything was just divinely downloaded to him. This is important for us to understand. He He came as a baby, then as a boy, and eventually a man who walked through life exactly as we have to. And so what we, I would say here is let's not be so quick to deify everything about Jesus. I feel like we can do that. He came of humble beginnings. He was born in a manger. And in this we should find solace knowing that he came for all people, everyone in this room, rich and poor, the educated, the uneducated. It doesn't make a difference. Jesus came for us all. You know, we're kind of more comfortable with the myth of Superman than what we got. You really are. We want somebody who can leap tall buildings with a single bound and fly faster than a speeding bullet. We think Jesus grew up with a blue leotard underneath his prayer shawl with a red S on it. He didn't. That's not how Jesus grew up. And it's more comfortable for us because that kind of absolves us from really having to strive to be more like Jesus. I don't know if you've considered that. When we talk about Jesus' family, we need to understand in the same way that your family shaped you, 
Jesus' family shaped him. God ordained it. Born to parents who valued compassionate justice and mercy, who taught him to love God and to love his neighbor. So I'd say if Jesus needed to pray, don't you think we need to pray? If he needed to study scripture, memorize scripture, don't you think we need to participate in those spiritual disciplines too? To become like Jesus, we have to live like he did. The last point I want to share is that God's here, and he showed up in first century Palestine. And let me say, sometimes I've gotten the question, Palestine for me is not a political statement. If you flip back to the back of your Bible, if you've got a study Bible, the map says Palestine during the time of Jesus. That's what the Romans called it. You know, God, it on my heart that I love Israelis, I love Palestinians. There is nobody that I don't love. Why? Because the Holy Spirit indwells me, <laughs> and he gives me that love. Um, so I'm simply labeling it according to the map in the back of your Bible, okay? Now, 200 years ago, here's what's, here's what's important for us to understand as we dial into the story. About 200 years after the birth of Jesus, an anonymous Christian, he wrote an expanded account of the birth of Jesus. It's called the Proto-Evangelium of James. Um, it's kind of an interesting title. And it was full of imaginative details. And from this novel, some of our Christmas story traditions, they come to life. It's in this novel that we see the hurry from Nazareth to Bethlehem. And nothing but a cave to receive this expectant family. This is where that comes from. Um, it's good drama, but it's really not very biblically or culturally accurate. A couple of the verses that cause a dilemma are verses 4 through 7. This is why I gave a pause in between 5 and 6 to kind of highlight that. Joseph takes his pregnant wife and he travels to Bethlehem. And it's understood that not only did Joseph likely grow up in Bethlehem, but that because of his return for the census, which registers people for the purpose of property... It actually is likely that Joseph still had some property there. It's about a five-day journey from Nazareth to Bethlehem. There's a map of it, so you can kind of see the route that they'd have to take. It's a long hike. Joseph wasn't making a last-minute trip to the hospital in Bethlehem with his pregnant wife while she's beginning labor. It says in our scripture, Joseph took Mary and went to Bethlehem. Then the scripture stops. And it says, and while they were there, Mary gave birth. I would say you may even want to draw a line in between 5 and 6. Yes, you can write in your Bible. It's okay. So you draw a line there to say, basically, there's a time period that elapses here, and we don't know what the time period was. So the question is, how much time elapsed between their going to Bethlehem and then Mary gives birth? And we really don't know. But let me ask, how many men ha have been in the hospital room when a child's been born? Anybody here for that? I've been for three. Okay, we've got some. Let me tell you some of my history. As a freshman in high school, I was encouraged to pursue like a medical career. I thought, okay, well, I like science, I like math. And I took biology, <clears throat> and we dissected something. That ended all thoughts of me ever wanting to get involved in the medical career. I don't do good with bodily fluids. I cannot pull my kid's teeth. My wife gives me the hardest time about that. She's like, I think you have to pull Nate's teeth. Yeah, that's not going to happen. It's going to come out eventually. I just, I just don't do that. Um, so on our first child, Nate, when he was born, I was in the hospital. So we attended birthing classes. You know, I, I'm good to follow instruction. I like education. They said, husbands wear warm clothes because the wives usually like the hospital rooms cold for delivery. I thought, okay, so I've got this nice, thick, hooded Eddie Bauer sweater on. And so we're getting in, you know, delivery's happening. We're in it now, okay? And I'm starting to get pretty hot. Um, so I take that sweater off. The nurse is like, you doing okay? Yeah, I'm doing okay. I'm just, it's like 90 degrees in here right now. I just, you know, the things going on here in this room, I don't know, maybe I shouldn't be here, I don't know. So and all that to say, if you've ever been in there, think about that 
from Nazareth to Bethlehem. So husbands, again, raise your hand. You've been in the hospital room. Anybody here think it's a good idea in your months, you know, the last month of pregnancy? Hey, why don't we go on a five-day hike? Does that sound like a good, good idea? I'm not signing up for that. Who's going to deliver that child? It's not going to be me. <laughs> I have yet to meet a man crazy enough to travel on foot or any other means for five days while their wife is nine months pregnant. Not going to happen. Chuck, where's Chuck? Chuck Clark, you're about there, man. Go on a five-day hike. See how that goes for you. No way. Can you imagine five days of groaning, yelling? Joseph, hurry. Look at what kind of stress. You know, they're like in Shunem. I'm only in Shunem. I got four days. I'm not going to make it. There's just, it's not going to happen. I just don't think it's going to happen. We're never going to make it. Now, I'm sure you'll ask, well, then what about the manger and there being no room in the inn, right? There's other things going on in the scripture. Well, let's, let's look at that. But before we do, what I want to look at first is Middle Eastern culture. Joseph's returning to the village of his origin. That's, that's Bethlehem for him. In Middle East, historical memories are really long. When we go to, to Jerusalem in June, if anybody in our group starts talking to somebody on the street there, Palestinian, Israeli, whatever, you're not talking to somebody, let's say even they're 50, 60 years old. That's not their mind. They've got like 4,000-year-old histories. So when you're talking to somebody who's 50 or 60, you're really you're talking to somebody that's 4,000 years old. They can recount all of their ethnic history. That's just the way they live. And the same would have been true for Joseph's day. The extended family with its connection to the village of origin, this is really important. When, when we're in Jerusalem, or when we were working there, I, I wanted to ask my, one of my Palestinian co-workers about this. I asked him about this because he was living in Jerusalem, but I knew his family was in Nazareth. So I just asked. I said, hey, if you, if you went to Nazareth and like, stayed in a hotel, what would your family think about that? And I loved his response. <laughs> He said, oh my God, my family, they would hate me. Like they would throw me out of the family. I have to stay with my family if I go to Nazareth. Like there's not an option. I mean, think about that for you. Your family could be offended too. You went to visit and said, well, I'm just going to stay in a hotel. I don't care to stay with you. That's not, not really an option. I mean, Joseph could have appeared in Bethlehem as a royal from the family of King David. Think about that. And told people, I'm Joseph, son of Heli, son of Mephat, son of Levi. And most homes in, in that town would have been open to him. And two, in every culture, a pregnant woman is given special attention. I, I've yet to see that not happen in a culture. Simple rural communities always assist one of their own women in childbirth. Can you imagine Bethlehem being an exception to that? I mean, surely the community would have sensed its responsibility to help Joseph find adequate shelter for Mary and provide the care she needed. To turn away a descendant of David would be an unspeakable shame for that entire community. Now, I do need to explain the manger the word manger seems to invoke the word stable or barn. We think about it that way. This really is an accurate portrayal of what a manger is, though. Uh, I visited several sites through uh, of ancient homes in Israel, and in doing so, I have a better idea of what a first-century home was like. So now here's a picture. This is at the uh, ancient ruins of a home in Nazareth, near the Church of Annunciation. So when you go to the church in the courtyard, are all these pictures, and behind it, they've done excavations of old Nazareth. And so this is one of the homes that's there. It actually is a home that's 2,500 years old. Uh, that's an old home. So the pillars that are in that cave-like part are actually not original, but it's still holding that home together. So that's what's happening there. And this is really the best picture of what a home in Bethlehem would look like because it's limestone in Nazareth and it's limestone in Bethlehem. And what they would do is you basically have a front area where the family lives, and then you go down some steps into the lower area where the animals reside. That's the stable area. Um, the homes had a family room where they cooked, they ate, they slept, they lived. 
This helps you better understand the story of the man visiting his neighbor at midnight. Jesus shares this parable about prayer, and he says, a man shows up at midnight, he says, I need bread, and the the dad says, look, my kids are asleep. Where are they asleep? Right there, right at his feet. They're just in that one room, so that's why he doesn't want to disturb them. And now at the end of this room, next to the door, usually a few feet lower than the rest of it, is the, where they keep the animals at night. People brought their animals in. That's their most valuable possession. That's kind of like you don't want to leave your tractor out in the field at night. You want to bring it in. Well, for these animals, they were a valuable possession. And think about David. He was killing lions and bears. So they don't want their animals to get killed at night. They bring them in. But in addition to that, in the wintertime, those, those animals would provide heat for that room because they're just in that one space. Now, I would say, think about animals living in the house. And this wasn't like a modern-day, neatly sanitized barn. I've been in some of your barns. They're beautiful. That's not the case here. And what do you think was the condition of that area? Manure and filth everywhere. Jesus, Jesus truly was born in the humblest of settings. Now, the roof of the homes, they're flat. They could have a guest room built on top of it. We see an example of that in 1 Kings for Elijah, a prophet's chambers, he called it there. And so here's a picture now of a reconstructed house in the Galilee area called Katsreen. And what you see, this home is actually from Talmudic times, but you can see they basically have a work area where they could work, and then behind that is the family room, and on top of that family room is a guest house, okay? So that's what you're looking at there. And the guest room, we also see it could actually be attached behind the house as well, so it could be up above it, or it could be behind it. And this is uh, the kind of home that we see both in the Old and New Testament. The story of Jephthah in Judges, chapter 11, he talks about such a home. Jephthah, he makes this vow that if God grants him victory on the return home, he'll sacrifice the first thing out the door. Now, I don't know about you, but especially as a kid when I was reading that, I just thought that was crazy. Like, why would he say that? Well, when you consider the kind of house he was in, Jephthah was used to the animals going out first in the morning to feed, to graze, and get water. So when he makes that pledge, he's thinking he's just going to sacrifice an animal. Well, unfortunately, his daughter's the first thing out the door. So instead of this being a story of victory and sacrifice, it turns into one of tragedy. And now in Matthew chapter 5, Jesus says, Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket. They put it on a stand and it gives light to all the house. So these Talmudic homes, there's actually, you can see there's a, a, um, a ledge in the rooms where if you put one lamp, it could light the whole room. That can only happen in a one-room home. So these are the types of homes that they're living in. This is the setting where Jesus was born. So in short, mangers were inside the house. But now what about the famous inn? It was funny, this morning at our volunteer breakfast, I asked how many of those volunteers were here for the, uh, the first time when I shared some of these thoughts, and they raised their hand, there was a number of people that had, and I said, well, hopefully you didn't ruin your Christmas story, and so of course one of the volunteers pipes up, oh, no worries, we just went home afterwards and burned our manger. <laughs> nice. Burning your manger in the front lawn, that's got to look good for Christmas. Don't do that, don't do that. <laughs> uh, of course, what we read is when we think about the inn, we think that means there's a no vacancy sign up when Joseph and Mary enter the town. You know, a lot of Christmas plays, you'll have a boy in his dad's overcoat yelling, you know, he's the, he's the innkeeper. No room, like keep going. But of course, now we know they were already staying in a family, with family in town, waiting for the time of birth. So that's not what's happening here. And most of the issue related to the word inn, in, I-N-N, is a matter of translation. Here's the verse we read. While they were there, the time came for Mary to give birth, She gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. Uh, The NIV actually has the best translation of this verse. Here's what the NIV says instead of inn. It says, Mary wrapped Jesus in clothes, placed him in a manger because there was no guest room available for them. 
Guest room is really a better translation of that word. Uh, the word translated in most versions for in, uh, it's a Greek word, kataluma. You see it listed here. That's how it's spelled. So the Greek word kataluma, they translated, or at least some translations have it as in. But really, there's two words that you can use for different kinds. Uh, Luke, when he talks about the parable, Jesus is sharing the parable of the Good Samaritan, and this beaten up man is put in an inn. That's the Greek word pandonsion. So it uses a different word. So if Luke wanted to use the word for hotel, he would have used that Greek word pandonsion. Later, at the end of Luke, when Jesus says, go and find an upper room where we can have the Last Supper, like Shelley was reading this morning, that is the word kataluma. So the translators, they translate it as upper room in that case, but for some reason they sometimes miss it here in chapter 2. So really the best translation for kataluma is guest room. So here's what you can do in your Bible. Next to the word in, I would just write in guest room. So now you're going to know moving forward, that's really what we should be looking at. So the verses we read said that Joseph and Mary were betrothed. It means basically that they were not yet married. So a lot of scholars think that Joseph, what happens is, is Mary comes back from visiting Elizabeth. It's obviously visible. There's visible signs that she's pregnant. Obviously, in the town of Nazareth, she's going to be ridiculed. Well, then uh, a, a decree is sent that you need to census. We want to have you go back to your hometown. And I think Joseph takes that as an opportunity to say, you know what? Me and Mary are getting out of town. We don't have to listen to this ridicule anymore. So they go down to Bethlehem, and it's likely that they went ahead and got married right there in town because it says they were betrothed, and then, of course, once they get there, they could have gotten married in Bethlehem. Um, and we'll look at some other passages as we keep going through Luke chapter 1 of why we see that that makes sense. And so now what we see is that the, boor, the child was born wrapped and put in bed in a living room in the manger, it was either built into the floor. So mangers sometimes were built into the floor. Sometimes they were a separate stall. It could be either one of those. This is the most likely scenario. So the question is, why was there no room for them in the guest room or the upper room? There's a couple of reasons. It could have been it was occupied by other guests already. That the host family graciously said, you know what, our guest room's already taken, but you can just stay with us in the main room. That's one option. Another thing is, is Mary obviously needed attendance when the baby was born. No males could be present. So instead of staying in the newlywed chamber, they could have come down to the main room where the attendants could have come and helped Mary with the delivery of Jesus. So those are some reasons. But now I do want to pause here to say, I go through scripture and I always ask the question, so what? Like, who cares? Who cares if that's really what the story is that's going on? Whenever we interpret scripture, whenever we look at application of the Bible, there's three important things you got to do. You want to look at what did this mean to the first century people? What did it mean to the original audience? That's important. What are the theological principles? What applies to them but applies to me? And then we can accurately apply this word to our lives. And here's why this matters. We don't need a rush journey from Nazareth to Bethlehem and the frantic search for a place to stay to appreciate the dramatic events of the birth of Jesus. There's enough drama involved with a virgin birth, the coming of the Messiah, the hope of the world arriving by starlight to the acclamation of angels, the Hollywood version of the story only serves to distract us from the true meaning and drama behind this passage. We don't need false drama. We need Emmanuel, God, with us. God came to us. He's with us. Why do we add to that story? Our Savior is here. Our Deliverer is here. We are Redeemer. Our Hero, our King is here. I don't need to add drama to my life. and You probably don't need to either. Jesus needs to be at the center of our life, where we can have more adventure and meaning in our life than through any other means. Jesus is here. Let's not miss that. Jesus, who is the image of the invisible God. 
Jesus, who's the firstborn of all creation. Jesus, who created all things visible and invisible. Jesus, who's above all thrones, dominions, and powers. Jesus, in whom all things consist. Jesus, who's the head of the body. Jesus, who's the firstborn from the dead, who is in all things preeminent. Jesus, who is gentle and great. He's just and merciful, awesome and safe. That's what we can celebrate. He's approachable, and he dwells in unapproachable light. He came as a vulnerable baby and will come again as a vanquishing king. We don't need drama. We need Jesus. God is here. And what does that mean for us? It means we don't need to worry, fear, or have anxiety in life. It means that we can be confident that what God has promised, that it will come to pass. If I'm honoring God with my resources, I know he'll take care of me and my family. We can abide in him and he's going to abide in us. No matter what the world says about you, God says, I loved you so much. I sent you my son because I want relationship with you forever. So let's stop living as though the world's in orbit by itself. Christians can live this way too. Let's start living with the knowledge that God is here and he changes everything. God is here. May we not miss that. David Platt, the author of several books, including Radical and Follow Me, he tells the story of him sitting outside of a Buddhist temple in Indonesia. Men and women filled the elaborate, colorful temple grounds where they were daily performing their religious rituals. Meanwhile, he's engaged in a conversation with a Buddhist leader and a Muslim leader in the community. And the Buddhist and Muslim leaders, they were discussing how all religions are fundamentally the same and only superficially different. They said, we have different views about the small issues, but when it comes down to essential issues, each of our religions is the same. Well, David listened for a while, and then he asked, and they asked and asked what he thought, and he said, well, it sounds as though that you both pictured God, or, or whatever you call God, at the top of a mountain. And it seems that you believe that we're all on the bottom, and we can take whatever route we want to get up there, that we'll all end up at the same place. And so they smiled and and said, yes, absolutely, exactly, you understand. Well, then David, he leans in and says, now, let me ask you a question. What would you think if I told you that God at the top of the mountain, he actually came down to where we're at? What would you think if I told you that God doesn't wait for people to find their way to him, but that God instead comes to us? They thought for a moment and responded, well, that would be wonderful. Well, David says, well, let me introduce you to Jesus. We don't need a rush journey from Nazareth to Bethlehem and the frantic searching for a place to say to appreciate the dramatic events of the birth of Jesus. God came to us. He's Emmanuel, God with us. God is here. It's not that he came, it's he's here. Where do you need God to show up in your life? What are you facing that needs godly intervention? The good news is God is here and he desires to be a part of it all. He loves to get involved in the mess of your life. So will you invite him to be a part of it? He wants to work on your behalf. I'm going to invite you to stand as we close in song this morning. As you're standing, one of the members of our church, he came up and shared. And he said, man, God is just speaking loud to my heart about this. And it's basically this, the simple message that Jesus is here. That whatever the the chaos, the confusion, everything else that's going on in your life, may you embrace the simple truth that Jesus came for you. We don't need the drama of the story. We need Jesus. So I would challenge you this morning, if you're here and you have yet to accept him, you've, you've yet to dedicate your life to him, don't leave this place without having done it. 
God desires a relationship with you, but you've got to choose it today. So with every head bowed here this, this morning, if that's you today and you'd say, you know what? I've been living a life as though Jesus doesn't exist. I've listened to the chaos, the confusion of the world around me, and I have yet to embrace the simple truth of who Jesus is. If that's you today, and you'd say, but you know what? I, I don't want to live that way. I want to accept Jesus as that free gift. The very simple truth is this, is that God sent his son. He so loved you that he sent Jesus, and that whoever believes in him will not perish, but have eternal life. So if you'd say, you know what? I, I, I don't have that promise of eternity, but I'd love it today. Simply raise your hand. I want to pray with you this morning to encourage you in your decision to follow Jesus. Anybody here today that says, I need to follow Jesus. I want to accept that free gift. I want to turn my life over to him. Anybody here today, simply raise your hand. We'll pray with you before you go. Up here in the front, anybody else? Anybody else that say, I want to follow you, Lord? Up in the balcony, anybody else? In the front row here, anybody else that would say, I want to follow you, Lord? I want to pray with you today. Jesus, we just pray. As these hearts have been turned over to you, Lord, you have been drawing them to you. You've had this open invitation to say, I want relationship with you. I just pray that they would embrace the truth of who you are. Come into their lives in powerful ways. Give them strength to live for you, Jesus. God, I thank you for the simple truth. The drama of you coming to earth. I don't need anything else. I just am so thankful, God, that you sent your son. Jesus, we embrace you as truth today. And God, I just pray as, as we continue and close in song that we would see you as our faithful God. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. We had several people raise their hands this morning. So prayer team, if you were helping us with prayer this morning, if you don't mind to come forward and, and help us this morning to be able to pray with these individuals. And if you raise your hand, I just want to invite you to come down. Um, not for the purpose of embarrassment, but we just want to celebrate you this morning. Can we celebrate those people that gave their lives over to the Lord today? Thank you, Lord. And if you didn't raise your hand but would like to follow Jesus, I just encourage you, feel free to follow um, them as they go out. All we do is we want to get you a Bible, and we want someone to be able to walk along with you and say, where do you go from here? I've made this decision, but what does it look like to follow Jesus? We just want to help you with that. That's it. Um, so let's stand and sing. Thanks for uh, leading us in song, Jim.